starting a new series today in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. If you've read ahead in the book of Judges in anticipation of today, you might be asking a question or two. You might be asking, what is Kevin going to do when he comes to this particular part in the book of Judges? There are some some things in Judges that are hard to consider the idea of reading them in church. And uh, I've been actually asked, what are we supposed to do with our kids on that particular day? And so I just want to tell you, rest easy. I will uh, operate with a filter here. I'll do the best I can to explain things so that they're clear and that they are appropriate for all ages. I'll use the filter I used with my kids when they started coming to worship. They came in as five-year-olds. And so I'll try to clean it up to a five-year-old family-friendly level. But I'll be using my filter. And so if you're in here this morning and you think, I'm not sure I think his filter is the same as my filter, and you've got questions about that, just send me an email and I'll be happy to respond. You might also be asking the question, if you've read the book of Judges lately, why in the world are you preaching this book? So I've got an answer for you. I'm glad you asked that question this morning. I read a story this last week of a man who was in a subway train. He'd gotten in there to go from one place to another. He's in there with several other people. He's going along and the subway train makes a stop. And when it makes a stop, a man and two children, his two children, get in the subway train. And the man sits down immediately, just leans back and shuts his eyes as if to close off the rest of the world. Meanwhile, his two kids begin to wreak havoc in the subway train. They just go berserk. They're yelling, they're screaming, they're throwing things. And it gets to a level where the guy who's sitting there telling this story is thinking to himself, everybody in here is irritated with this man for not controlling his kids. You get to a level and he thinks, I've got to say something. If I don't say something, somebody else is going to say something. Maybe I can say it a bit nicer than someone else. So he reaches over to the guy and kind of taps him. and He opens his eyes. He says, sir, I, I just wonder if you might kind of take a look around and see that everybody's going, growing uncomfortable with your children. They're going crazy in here. And Could you maybe get them a little bit under control? And the man looks around and he goes, you're right. I'm so sorry. I'm just not thinking clearly. I don't know exactly what to do right now. The kids and I just left the hospital where their mom and my wife died. And maybe they don't know what to do either. In that moment, that guy said that his whole perspective on the situation was altered. All of a sudden, he had patience flying out the roof for those kids. He saw what was previously an irritation to him as something he would excuse. He felt compassion and wanted to do something to help. Everything changed because for the first time in that moment on the train, he saw things as they really were and everything else changed. The reason I believe I'm preaching the book of Judges to our church family is because I believe God wants to give us a picture of something that will change our lives. There there are three things in the book of Judges that we're going to see repeated, issues that I think apply to our church family right where we are. One is the people of God are going to be encouraged to have the right leader in place. Our church family is in a place right now where we are seeking some right leaders in areas of our lives, our church family. Worship pastor, a children's minister, 
Next Sunday, you'll actually be asked to vote on the search team for the children's ministry. We're looking for the right leaders, and we want to be the right kind of leaders here in our lives, in our church, in our homes. And so what God's people are hearing is what we need to hear. God's people are going to hear in Judges the importance of worshiping God and God alone. And we've been asking the Lord would send an unprecedented wave of unity into this place. And it would be primarily through our worship of God and God alone as a church family. We're going to see time and again God's people being reminded to to hold fast the Word of God, to remember the Word of God, to put the Word of God in their lives. And I want us to become a disciple-making church family like we've never experienced before in our lives. Well, that simply won't happen if the Word of God is not primary in our hearts. And I believe this book is very, very appropriate for this season in our church's life. And so we're going to get the opportunity to hear God speak and respond to him as a church family. Now when the book of Judges begins, Judges chapter 1 verse 1 begins with a historical assumption. We're jumping right into the middle of history here. And if you're not familiar with Israel's history, you might feel a little bit lost initially because we're going to jump in and there's some historical assumptions made that you know what's been going on. So I'll do the best I can to explain along the way, but if you're sitting here this morning and I started in these historical stories and statements and you're lost, just hang in there as a learner. Come here saying, I want to learn, I want to figure out what's going on, I want to understand God's Word better, and you'll catch up as we go. You'll, you'll be understanding some things as we roll, and so don't, don't get worried this morning if we jump in the middle of something, you're a little bit confused on what's happening historically. I'll help you along the way if you'll just keep coming as a learner. You'll figure it out more and more as we gather together to study this particular book of the Bible. Now let me give you just a quick historical snapshot that will enable us to get right into this passage. When Adam and Eve were created, they were given a land, the Garden of Eden. And that land was theirs. It was a blessed land. It was a place where they got to walk in the presence of God and experience all that God had given them in perfection. When they sinned against God, God took them out of that land. He said, you can't come into that land anymore. Then later in in history, God called a man named Abraham and said, I want to make this man the father of many people. And I want his family, his people to be my people, and I want to be their God, and I want to take them, and I want to give them a new land. So he began to move Abraham and his descendants toward a new land. And in this new land, God intended to to bless his people and to make them a special people on the face of the earth in a land that he had given them so that everybody else on the face of the earth would see this people blessed in this land and would say, we want to know the God of that people. They were supposed to live in that land and be a witness to the rest of the world to the faithfulness and goodness of God. And we're picking up the story of the people of God going to the promised land. They've entered the land under the leadership of a man named Joshua. And now each tribe that makes up the people of God are going in and taking their allotted areas of the promised land individually as tribes. They've conquered the land as a whole, and now they're coming in, and they're now taking over the territories that have been allotted to them by God. And we're picking up the story at that stage. So look at with me, Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. 
says, Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And then verse 3 starts this, the story of how Judah actually then goes into the territory allotted to them and begin to battle for that territory. Now the first thing you see is that Joshua, the leader of God's people, is has died. And as a result of having the leader of the people die, the people then turn to the Lord and say, what shall we do? That's exactly what you'd want the people of God doing when the leader of God's people dies, turning to the Lord saying, what shall we do? And the people hear the Lord say, this is what you shall do. Judah shall go up. He shall take the land. He's the lead tribe taking out the land for the people. And that's exactly what the people do. The people listen to God. They inquire of God. God speaks and the people do exactly what God said. This is exactly how you want to start this book, the people of God, inquiring of God, hearing God speak, responding to God, and obeying Him. And the picture that you get is Judah going to take these territories, this area, for themselves according to the Lord's prescribed plan. Judah takes off leading, and it's this great reminder to the people of God that God's made a promise. You see, God made a promise that someone from the family of Judah would become king and would reign as king forever. So God's reminding the people by saying, Judah, now you're to take the lead of the promise that God has made that the scepter of ruling will not depart from the tribe of Judah. God's reminding us that he's made a promise that the right leader is needed and he's coming. Then the next story you see is that Judah is going out and having this first battle. In the first battle, they, they, they capture the leader of this territory. When they capture the leader of this territory, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. That sounds a little strange and somewhat cruel until you read verse 7. Verse 7, the leader who had his thumbs and toes cut off says, I have done this to 70 kings. And I made them crawl around on the floor like animals, begging for food. As I have done, the Lord has done to me. He just confesses that God has justly brought judgment upon him for the wrongs that he has done. Think about the picture that's created right here at the beginning of the book of Judges. God's people are hearing God's voice. They're responding to him. They're obeying him. God is reminding them of a promise of a coming king. And he's displaying his justice on the behalf of his people. This is an amazing picture. This is exactly how you want the book of Judges to begin. Seeing God's people responding to God, obeying him, following him, and God exercising justice on their behalf. And the people of God expecting the right leader to show up and take the place of Joshua. So Judah goes out, they begin to have these successes, and then, and then a little story about Caleb is, is told. Now what's interesting about this story of Caleb is Caleb was there when the people of God went into the promised land, the very first major trip into the promised land. He went out to spy out a place called Jericho. He went out to spy the promised land. When he came back with the 12 other spies, 10 of them said, we're not going to the promised land, but Jacob Joshua and Caleb said, we're going in. We're, we can do this. 
Because Caleb believed God's word and obeyed what God had said, Caleb was given a promise. When you get into the promised land, you're going to have this city for you. Moses made a promise to him. Well, this story about Caleb, who's from the tribe of Judah, is the story of Caleb receiving exactly what was promised. Caleb listened to God's word. He did what God said. He followed God, and God came through in his promises. Another great picture where they're headed. But there's this little verse right at the end of the story of this thing with Caleb that says that the tribe of Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of this particular area. Up until that point in this story, everything sounded just right. But right there in the story, everything's sounding wonderful. There's this little phrase, Judah, the leader tribe, the one of promise, could not do it. Wait a minute, what's, what's wrong here? What's happening? And then there's this other little story about the tribe of Joseph. They go in to spy out this particular city like they did with Jericho when they're ending into the land originally. They go into spy this little city, and this guy's coming outside the city, and these spies from the tribe of Joseph encounter him and say, hey, will you help us know how to get into your city so that we can win it because we're going to win it. That's what's going to happen. And this guy says, I'll help you on one condition, that you spare my life. So they spared his life, and sure enough, they went and took over the city. And this guy that they spared, he went and built another city. And named it the name of the city that they just destroyed. Now what's interesting about that story is that it's intended to remind us of something in history. Here we go. Historical assumption. The story that it's intended to remind us of is that story about Jericho where spies go in to check out Jericho. They get into Rahab's house. And Rahab says, I'll help you guys. But you got to make sure that you spare me and my family. Now, here's the difference between the story of Rahab and the story of this man who rebuilt the city of Luz. The difference is Rahab said, I see the greatness of God in the faithfulness of God's people, and I want to join the people of God. And Rahab actually marries an Israelite and is in the lineage of the line of Jesus. Jesus is born from the family of Rahab. So she's grafted into the people of God. It's an amazing picture of her joining the people of God because she sees the faithfulness of God through the people of God. Well, this man who went to rebuild the city of Luz, he saw God's people coming in to take his land, and he apparently saw nothing in God's people that caused him to want to join them. He'd just as soon go off and build another city and call it Luz. Again, you're... You're at that point asking the question, why did this guy not want to join the people of God? Because it worked out so well with Rahab. What's the problem here? What's going wrong? And then from verse 27 all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 36, you're going to see a recurring phrase. Here's the phrase you're going to hear again and again. They did not drive out the people. God had promised his people a new land so that when they inhabited that land, they'd be uniquely blessed and everybody would look at them and say, I want to know God. When they came into the land, God had promised them the land was theirs. He was justly judging the land and granting it to his people. And his people could not drive out the inhabitants of the land. When you get to this point in the story, you need to be screaming out, what went wrong? What happened? It sounded so good. They were listening to God. They were responding to God. They were believing God. They were following Him. And then they could not drive out the people out of the land. What went wrong? 
And you get to this place in the story and you're begging for the answer to that question. We come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Read this with me. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham. Bacham means weeping. He came to the place of weeping. And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted their voices and they wept. And they named the place Bacham, weeping. And there they sacrificed to the Lord. And the saddest part of this story is they wept and they sacrificed to the Lord, but nothing changed. Nothing changed. Verses 6 through 10 give us this historical snapshot, flashing all the way back to the days of Joshua, all the way to the current moment in this book. Listen to what verses 6 through 10 say. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Harris of Mount Gosh. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. In 1986, Dr. Hopkins decided he would declare war against the Guinea worm disease. You heard of the Guinea worm disease? In 1986, there were 3.5 million cases of people getting the guinea worm disease in that year. That was what was happening every year. And Dr. Hopkins wanted to eradicate this disease. The problem is there's no cure, there's no vaccine, there's no medical treatment of any significance. There's no immunity. Once you get the disease, you can get it again if you live past the first time of getting it. In spite of all of those odds, Dr. Hopkins believed that if he could change a few simple behaviors, by changing a few simple beliefs, that people could adopt a new way of life in a matter of one year could eradicate the disease from the face of the earth. Do you know what the guinea worm disease is? You get it from drinking dirty water. And this happens in places in Africa and Asia. You drink the dirty water, and the dirty water is infected by guinea worm larvae. 
And one of those larvas gets into your body through drinking the dirty water, and it gets in there, and it, it burrows through the digestive tract into the, the body cavities, usually in the legs or the feet. And then that worm stays in there for about a year undetected by the host, and it grows to adulthood. When the worm gets to adulthood, it's about two to three feet long, about the diameter of a thick piece of spaghetti, and it burrows to the surface of the skin, and it excretes this acid-like substance that creates blisters on the skin. And when those blisters begin to pop and become visible on the skin, it becomes so terribly painful that the host, the person who has this disease, cannot stand the pain. And the only thing they can think of is, I've got to get this sore in water. It's amazing that that's the thing they're thinking. Because when they get to the water and they immerse that sore in water, that little worm begins to inch its way out of the skin and releases hundreds of thousands of little baby larvae into the water supply, contaminating the water further. The pain is excruciating. They can, they can grab that little worm if they see it, and they can begin to wrap it around a stick in order to pull it out. But the pulling out takes anywhere from weeks to months. And while it's happening, the pain is so extreme that it immobilizes your life. Parents cannot take care of children. People cannot go to work. It shuts down entire communities, destroys families and lives. But what Dr. Hopkins believes, he goes, if I can affect people's belief and they can understand why this is happening to them, why are you getting sick? He could then alter a couple of little behaviors and could eradicate the disease. Well, this has never been done before in history, but guess what? In 1986, 3.5 million cases. In 2015, 22 cases in the world. It just might be that in 2016, this disease, which will be historically monumental, will be eradicated from the earth. Never had a vaccine, never had a cure, never had medical treatment. Eradicated. Because of the, alter, the altering of beliefs and behavior. There is a guinea worm disease in our midst. The ignorance of God's Word is a disease that is ravaging lives, homes, churches, and communities. And if we could just alter a few of our beliefs, if we could just alter a couple of our behaviors, we could be a part of seeing the ignorance of God's Word in our lives, in our church, in our community eradicated. And I wonder if you might be open to hearing the Word of God today and see that there are some things you need to believe about God's Word that judges are going to make clear again and again and again. Did you know that everything bad in your life, every single bad thing that happens in your life is connected to a departure from God's Word? Everything. I mean, sin is just ignoring God and His Word, and a departure from God's Word is sin. And everything that happens bad in our lives because of sin in our lives or sin in a broken world, everything bad in our lives happens. It's connected to a departure from God's Word.
And if we will begin to abide in the Word of God, people who abide in the Word of God experience an incredible effect in their life from the Word of God. It changes their lives and blesses all people around them. I want you to think about something. There are th- every bad thing in your life that happens happens because of a departure from God's Word. If you begin to abide in God's Word, there's something going to happen in your life. The things that happen in your life, because you've not paid attention to God's Word, will cease to happen, and the blessings that God promises when you abide in His Word will begin to happen. So in your personal life, every day you can replace the negative consequences of not abiding in God's Word with the positive blessings of abiding in God's Word just by beginning to abide in God's Word. But you've got to recognize that every bad thing in your life comes because of a departure from God's Word. Okay, I'm going to abide in God's Word. Guess what? Immediately it will be replaced in your life. And it goes beyond that. We live in a world that is characterized by a departure from God's Word, right? And because of that, we can't control some of the bad things that happen in our lives because they're happening through the lives of other people who departed from God's Word. But here's what God's Word says. The person who abides in the Word of God and lives in a world characterized by the departure from God's Word, all of the bad things that happen to them because of the brokenness of the world, I will turn into something good. I will make it a blessing in their life. This is the story of Joseph. When his brothers took him and sold him into slavery of Egypt, Joseph said to his brothers, Hey, don't worry, I'm not mad at you anymore for selling me into slavery because what you intended for evil, God turned to good. And through what you meant for harm, he used me to save a nation. That's what God does in the life of one who abides in the Word. He removes the bad things from their life when they don't follow God's Word that personally come in. And then he enables everything that comes into your life bad that comes from the departure of God's Word in the world to be turned into a blessing, to be used for something good. I don't know how God does it, but that's what he does. He promises it, and he comes through on his promises. He's faithful to the people who abide in the Word of God. If we will be a people who believe in that, then we will be a people who change the pattern of our behavior on an everyday basis. We'll begin to abide in God's Word. We'll begin to listen to what God says. We'll begin to respond to who He is. And we'll become a church full of people who are saying, I will follow God's Word no matter what. I will help younger people in the faith to hear about God. I will be a parent who instructs my children in the ways of God. And whenever a church and an individual decides I will abide in the Word of God, they become a blessing to the community. And the community sees the goodness of God in the people of God who abide by the Word of God. Did you know that every single day 150,000 people die? Every day. That means every hour 6,300 people are dying. Did you know that that means yesterday, when 150,000 people died, that 60% of those people had not heard the gospel? If you just run the numbers on what's happening in the world right now, 60% of the people that die every day don't hear the gospel. 40% of those people that die without hearing the gospel don't even have a chance to hear the gospel. 
40% of the world right now has no chance to regularly hear, the, I mean, just no chance at all to hear the gospel. 60,000 people died yesterday and they had no chance to hear the gospel. Those are people that are doing what is right in their own eyes. And that grieves the heart of God. God says in Ezekiel chapter 33, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I would much prefer that the unrighteous who do not know me, that are doing what's right in their own eyes, come to trust me and find forgiveness. In 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, the Lord says, I'm not slow in keeping my promise to return and be just in judging the earth. No, I am slow because I don't want anyone to perish, but I want everyone to come to repentance. It grieves the heart of God when people do what is right in their own eyes and they miss out on the beauty of what He has said and the salvation that comes through the gospel. And I'm convinced that nothing grieves God more than when His people do what is right in their own eyes. And the reason I believe that grieves God's heart more than anything is because it is the people of God, the church, who are called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And right now in the church, we have thousands of times more the manpower and the financial wherewithal to reach the ends of the earth. We have more than enough capacity to reach the ends of the earth. We have 900 Christian churches for every one people group in the world. We have tens of thousands of confessing believers for every one people group in the world. We have tons of money to be able to go and send millions more. But somehow that's not happening because 0.001% of money given to the Christian cause is going to reach the 60,000 people that are dying every day with no chance. 0.37% of all Christian workers are going to reach the 60,000 that die every day with no chance. And I just want to say to you, we all look good. It sounds like we're starting well, but something's wrong. Somebody's doing something that's right in their own eyes. And I fear that it's the church. And here's what I'm praying. That God would change us so that we would be a people who do what is right in God's eyes and eradicate the ignorance of God's word and be used to touch the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will the deacons come forward for a time of communion?